Uh, we do have our children's class at this time. If kids, if you haven't already gone there, you're welcome to do that. Um, also, if you're unaware, every Sunday we have a nursery that's fully staffed that just meets in the corner room uh, right over there. So grateful for our, all the children that we have here in our ministry at Beaumont Baptist Church. Well, I want to invite you to join me at this time in the book of Proverbs, chapter 17. You can turn to verse 14. Proverbs 17, 14. Whether it be on the battlefield or the athletic field, great victories are often won not merely by great offense alone or great defense alone, but both. You really need both. And as we, God's people, the church, step out onto the field, we really are up against some great opponents. Uh, What does the Bible say those opponents are? The world, the flesh that's within us, and the devil himself. And each of those opponents would love to see us crumble and just fall apart at the seams, uh, particularly relationally. And our relationships, they can do that. They can rapidly crumble and deteriorate. And to keep that from happening, our captain has called us to play uh, basically both offense and defense. And on the one hand, he calls us to guard against something that would represent really a huge, huge win for the enemy. And on the other, he calls us to pursue or advance towards something that is very positive. We've been working through some of the phrases in our church covenant. And our covenant sets before us this biblical commitment. It's number seven. I will be slow to take offense. That is something that we defend against. That is not good. We want to counter that. And quick to seek reconciliation. That is something that we pursue or we march towards being right with one another. Often we're quick to take offense and slow to seek reconciliation, and that is always a win for the enemy. But when we follow and obey our Lord's directives, victory becomes possible. God wants you, you personally, to be slow to take offense and quick to seek reconciliation. Uh, we read these beautiful words in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. I think this verse is probably quite familiar to you. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. This is the thing that we keep on doing. We love one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins. We're going to look here today at five realities about the biblical commitment that we see in our, our covenant about being slow to take offense and quick to seek reconciliation. And our first simple reality is that that is a biblical commitment. The Bible teaches that you should be slow to take offense. In the book of Proverbs, a book that's just brimming with practical, everyday wisdom, God wisely cautions us against pursuing every single offense. If you look at Proverbs 17, 14, where I asked you to turn, it says there that the beginning of strife or conflict is like letting out water. And so we're cautioned there, if that's the case, if it's like letting out water, so quit before a quarrel breaks out. You might be familiar with the Daniel Johnson Dam in Quebec. It's a 214 meter high uh, kind of buttress style dam that impounds or holds the third largest reservoir volume in the world. It can hold up to 142 billion cubic meters of water. I mean, that is incredible. You just think about the weight of all of that water. This verse says that the beginning of strife is like, like letting water out. It's like opening up a dam. If you just imagine a small crack in that dam, 
but most likely a small crack will increase in size until the dam breaks forth and just all the water comes gushing. More water could be let loose than one could predict, control, or retrieve. And this verse is saying that, that uh, pursuing conflict, pursuing strife, pursuing an offense, it can be like that. I mean, once, once you open things up, once there's that crack, it could just pour forth. And you might not be able to control or predict or retrieve what happens. Pursuing an offense can be like that. And so God wisely cautions against pursuing or, or opening up every single offense. It, if it's not biblical nece- biblically necessary, you should think twice about pursuing it. One of the reasons it's not always necessary is because God strongly convinced to all of us this idea actually of, of overlooking an offense. However, that is not the only right response, and I want to say that from the outset. Essentially, you can cover an offense. You can overlook an offense, or you can confront it. And we all need God's wisdom to know which one of those we should do and when we should do it. It's often best to cover an offense when the other person's motives are unclear. I, you know, I don't know why they did that. Or when the other person is influenced by other factors like sickness, stress, and so on. Sometimes we just know, you know, that, that person, what they did was wrong. But I can also see that they are under an immense amount of stress right now in their personal life or at work or in some other situation. But other times it's best to confront it. For example, uh, when you see a pattern of sin, like this isn't a one-off. Like this is happening all the time. And maybe not just me, with me, perhaps others. Or when the behavior hurts your relationship, it's standing between you and this other person. Or when the behavior harms that person or another person. But when possible, and many times it is possible, God strongly commends overlooking an offense. I want you to turn with me to Proverbs chapter 10. Uh, Three times in Proverbs, God commends this course of action to us, overlooking an offense. And why don't you put your finger, I'm gonna, we're going to work through three verses in Proverbs here, uh, all in, in succession. And why don't you just put your finger in all three of these passages for a moment. The first one is Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. And it says this, it says that hatred stirs up strife, but notice what love does. Love covers all or all kinds of offenses. Okay, if you keep your finger there and you turn over to chapter 17, verse 9, We'll see something very similar. Proverbs 17, 9 says this, Whoever covers an offense seeks love. But he who repeats a matter does something else, actually separates close friends. Keep your fingers in both of those passages and now look over at chapter 19, verse 11. Nineteen eleven says this: Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Uh, consider if we were to just take that verse and kind of state it in negative terms instead of positive ones. It might sound something like this: Folly makes one quick to anger, and it is to one shame to fixate on an offense. You know that God loves it when, when we take offenses, the offenses of other people, the sins of other people against us, or maybe just things that were hurtful, whether they were sinful or not. 
And God loves it when we take those things and make them disappear in our hearts and minds. God loves when we tuck other people's uh, sins behind the curtain rather than dragging them out there in front of everybody else on the stage for all to see. Uh, I think when we do things like this, we say in our hearts and minds, you know, perhaps he or she didn't mean what he said or how that came out. Maybe that's not really what they meant. Perhaps I misunderstood. Uh, Perhaps he was having a bad day. You know what? I have a lot of those myself. And I appreciate when people just show me grace. Perhaps he wasn't thinking straight. God strongly commends overlooking an offense. Overlooking an offense is an act of covering. Uh, Love is just going to cover that one. Overlooking an offense is an act of love. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, I think you'd probably still have your finger there, says that love covers all or all kinds of offenses. Proverbs 17, 9, again, whoever covers an offense seeks love. God says this is a loving thing. And the New Testament just goes on to reaffirm that very that exact same thing. 1 Peter 4, 8, love covers a multitude of sins. And of course, we're familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, that it, it talks about love is not easily angered. And it, it keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't pull out its notebook and then, well, this happened here and this happened there and here's my list. Proverbs teaches us as well that overlooking an offense is an act of good sense. Chapter 19, verse 11, talked about how good sense makes one slow to anger and, and they're in that same context and it is his glory to overlook an offense. We see as well that Overlooking an offense really is an act of honor. This is honorable. Chapter 19.11, it is his glory to overlook an offense. It is an honorable, beautiful act to do that. Uh, I was just thinking about our, our world. We speak often nowadays about our world being woke. Our woke world, when you think about it, frankly, is an offended world. And in the world in which we live, being offended is often a badge of honor. There's something prideful about being offended, taking up an offense. And it's like we're being constantly conditioned in our world around us as we look all around and see people responding to this and that. We're being conditioned to be offended and to think that that's good, honorable. And yes, there are many things in our world that need confronted. There is no question about that. There are wrongs and injustices and things that need dealt with, and we shouldn't sit back and not care. But when offendedness becomes a way of life, that is not good. We've had a bit of a skunk problem at our house in recent years. If you've come to our house for dinner and left after dark, we've probably warned you, be careful when you open the back door. (laughs) There could be a skunk back there. It's been a problem. And without going into great detail... Two, two uh, skunks just so happened to meet their demise at our house, very close to our house, at which point when they met their demise, a very foul smell was released. Very foul, offensive. Um, if I didn't do something about it immediately, I mean, I had dead skunks like 60 feet behind our house. If I didn't do something about it immediately, that offensive smell was only going to become worse as this skunk just rotted and rotted and rotted and rotted. And so I thought to myself, what am I going to do? What, what does one do with a dead skunk? I have no idea. And then, then I thought, okay, well, I know what I'm going to do. I went to the garage. I grabbed a shovel. I went out behind the house. I dug a hole. I dropped the skunk in, and I buried it. And it worked. 
I covered what was offensive with two to three feet of dirt and the offense was gone. And I'm telling you, I am not going to go back out there and dig it up again. No way. It's disgusting. God is not calling you to bury other people and remove them from your life. He's calling you to biblically bury offenses and not, not just hide them in, in, in the wrong way, but bury them biblically. And you don't, you don't bury those offenses with dirt. You bury them with love. And it's not your love, actually. It, it's God's love working in and through you and coming out in these sorts of events in life. And there may be some of you here, and frankly, what you need to do is you need to go out and you need to bury some skunk, some offense that, that you have taken up and you've been holding on to, and it needs to be biblically buried with love. God strongly commends overlooking an offense. And I, so I just want to ask you, is there anything like that in your life that that's precisely what you need to do? Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 18, verse 19. God thought it very important to give us a picturesque image of what an offended person looks like. What do you like, look like most likely when you're offended? When you offend somebody else, what do they look like? God vividly depicts the offended person. To what does God liken the offended person? To an impenetrable, fortified city. Proverbs 18, verse 19 says this, A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city. And quarreling is like the bars of a castle. You are wise to consider that verse from two different angles. Most of my life I read this verse and I considered it from the angle of when I offend somebody else, what might they be like? When you say or do something sinful or hurtful to someone, it might be fair to expect that, that they are going to erect high, strong walls. And getting through those walls may be extremely difficult. And I think this proverb is saying, hey, don't be surprised by that. There may be times where that response may actually be warranted by the offended party. It, it's a little bit of sometimes the, the once bit, twice shy idea. But that's not the only angle that I think that God would have us look at this verse from. What about the angle of when a brother offends you? And you become more unyielding than a strong, fortified city. And again, maybe that's perfectly appropriate. But there could be instances when it's not. Like when love could have or should have covered that. Or when you're just easily offendable. Or when you just got your feelings hurt. Do you really want to be in those moments more unyielding than a strong city? I mean, imagine the drawbridges come up. I mean, it's just a strong, fortified place. One person said this about this verse. What horrible strength there is in taking up an offense. Offended people can become unassailable, recalcitrant, too hard-hearted to hear an appeal. When we are offended, we believe ourselves to have the moral high ground. Therefore, we feel justified in making the one who has offended us the villain. Is this verse warning us about not offending others or warning us about what we're like when we're offended? Perhaps both. It being offended is a powerful drug because it gives us power. I think that's insightful and true. 
Hurt feelings harden into offendedness. And we, when we turn hurt feelings into offendedness, we go from vulnerable and now we're impenetrable. We've had chickens for a few years now. I know some of you are chicken owners. We're, we're kind of new to it, so I've made all kinds of stupid rookie chicken owner mistakes. Um, but we never had a broody hen until this year. And if you're unaware of what I, I mean, I'd hear people talking about a broody hen. I didn't even know what a broody hen was until I had one. Like, what in the world is going on with this chicken? Uh, a broody hen is a hen that's committed to hatching chicks. And if she's left to her own devices, she will lay or, or she will lay a few eggs and then she will sit on those eggs uh, and perhaps other eggs for 21 days until they hatch. And then she still may decide to sit there. At one point, just a few months ago, we had a broody hen that was sitting on 18 eggs. I mean, it got to the point where there were so many eggs she could hardly sit on them all. It was ridiculous and she was not about to move. If another hen or chick got too close to her, she would, and you could watch this happen. Like if you peeked in the coop, you're like, ooh, that one's getting too close. <laughs> and then boom, she'd pounce off her eggs and peck at another, uh, another hen or maybe even just a small little chick, snap at them. And as soon as she did, and her eggs would kind of be scrambled everywhere at that point. And she'd go back to her eggs and she'd get them all back in order, sit down. Oh, there's one over here I got to get, you know, and plop on them all again fascinating. You may be a Christian who, like a broody hen, has chosen to sit on one or multiple offenses, refusing to leave them, and you're brooding over them. And while there may be something honorable about a hen doing that with her eggs, I mean, those are her young. There is nothing honorable about a Christian doing that with his or her offenses. God strongly commends overlooking an offense in love. Now, as commendable as it is to cover or overlook an offense, and, and as often as we should be doing that very thing, there are times when that may not be the best course of action. And God recognizes that he knows that. In some instances, the best course of action is actually not to lovingly cover an offense, but to lovingly confront what has happened. And when that is the case, you should be quick to seek reconciliation. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Our covenant reads this. It says, I will be slow to take offense and quick to seek reconciliation. God cares about the reconciliation or reconciliation between brothers in Christ so much that what God actually does is place the responsibility for that uh, to initiate that squarely on the shoulders of both parties. Not just one side or the other, but both sides. The offended and the offender. And God, as he does that, urges haste. You need to understand that the ball, so to speak, is always at least initially in your court. Matthew's gospel makes it clear that both the offender and the offended both have the responsibility to initiate reconciliation when wrongs have occurred. In Matthew 5, we see uh, that the offender has the responsibility to initiate. So if you're there in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look together at verses 21 to 26. And I, ju I just want to read uh, this portion of Scripture from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 21 to 26. This is Jesus teaching. And he says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. 
But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And then we have this fascinating uh, example that God gives us. Jesus says, so in verse 23, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. You've sinned against him. You've offended him. Verse 24, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Just having read those verses, who is God telling to initiate reconciliation this time? The offender or the person who's done the offending? Well, in this case, it's the person uh, who's actually done the wrong. The picture here is of a Jewish man, and he has traveled all the way, most likely from whatever village he was living in, in Israel, and he's traveled all the way from his village to the Jerusalem temple. And maybe he's even done that on foot. I mean, I don't know, maybe he had a mule or something like that. But see, it's even possible that he went, walked all the way to Jerusalem on foot. And he's done that to worship the Lord and to offer an animal sacrifice to his God. Maybe he's walked with his animal in tow all the way there to worship God like that. And there at the altar, he remembers that his brother has something against him. In other words, he's sinned against his brother. And so what does God say? I know you walked all the way here to worship me. Maybe it took you four days to get here. Maybe it took you longer. And here at the altar, you're, you're about to worship me by offering a sacrifice to me. And God says, pump the brakes. Stop. You go back home. There's, you, in, in fact, you, you almost can't even really be worshiping me right now until you go back home and you make this right with this other person. You're not in a place to worship me until you go home and make it right. The offender has the responsibility here to initiate reconciliation. If you turn over to chapter 18 of Matthew's gospel, uh, God, again, cares about reconciliation between brothers and sisters in, in Christ so much that he's also put responsibility, uh, the offended has the responsibility to initiate. If you look at Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him beat you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Okay, who is God telling to initiate reconciliation here? The person who's been sinned against. Similarly, Luke 17, 3 says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. In other words, you go have that conversation. And if he repents, forgive him. The offended has the responsibility to initiate reconciliation. And God is clear in multiple places in Scripture that time is of the essence. Uh, the passage that we looked at in Matthew chapter 5 said this. It said, come to terms quickly with your accuser. Get this done. Don't delay. 
I consider the well-known words of Ephesians chapter 4, 26 and 27, where we're told, be angry and don't sin. And then this, do not let the sun go down on your anger. And then it, it just, just more keeps coming. Verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. And, and there's this connection of when you let the sun set on these type of things, a door is just flung wide open for Satan to work. When these things fester, Satan has an opportunity to walk right through, and he will. Um, I've mentioned a, a, a quotation uh, from J.C. Ryle. I forget the exact words of, of, of that, but the idea is that Satan loves tomorrow. Like Satan, he doesn't care when you do it, as long as it's tomorrow, right? Like, oh yeah, I don't care if you go be right with that person. Just make sure it's tomorrow. <laughs> tomorrow, we'll be good. God wants you to be slow to take offense and quick to seek reconciliation. That is a biblical commitment. Is there someone that you need to seek to be reconciled to? God wants you to pursue that. And, and perhaps what needs to happen is, frankly, you just need to let love cover it, right? Like, you know what? I've just been holding this thing, and that hasn't been right. And love needs to cover it. Or perhaps you need to go and you need to seek someone's forgiveness. You know what? I sinned against you. Will you forgive me? Or perhaps you need to go and communicate with someone. Hey, can we talk? And do it very graciously. And I just want to talk about something that happened. And I believe you wronged me. And I believe you sinned against me. And honestly, my heart here is I want you. I don't think I'm not convinced that you and I are right right now and that is so important to me and I want that more than anything else right now to be right with you and I feel like we need to talk for that to occur this is a biblical commitment there's a second simple reality about this commitment that we see in our covenant it is a threatened commitment uh, we're often, as I said, quick to take offense and slow to seek reconciliation it's almost easier to take uh, it's almost always easier to take the wrong path the right path is often hard. I mean, we see this commitment threatened in the Bible. We see it threatened in our own lives, and we certainly see it threatened to our own peril. What's at stake? What, ha what happens if we don't do this? What if we say, hey, yeah, no thanks. I'd rather not. The passages that we've considered have mentioned a few of the things that are at stake. Like what? Well, Proverbs 10 verse 12 mentions uh, the presence of strife and conflict, and probably the ongoing presence of that. Proverbs 17, 9 mentioned the destruction, the, the severing of not just any type of friendship, often very close ones. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 uh, spoke about the opportunity for Satan to work. Matthew 5, 24 mentioned the inability to worship. Hey, leave your animal here and go home. Make it right. How can you worship me when you're not right with your brother? In Matthew 5, 25 it seems to be getting at this idea of this misery that comes from the guilt of not being right with another person. And that's just to name a few. Again, God wants you to be slow to take offense and quick to seek reconciliation. It's a threatened commitment. It's also a practical commitment, number three. Our relationships are often messy, 
meaning that this commitment needs to be lived out so, so often. I mean, I think we need to understand that there are going to be challenges in this space. We are going to sin against each other. We are going to offend each other. This is going to happen, and it's probably going to happen a lot. Like when someone doesn't take your suggestion or advice, well, I thought we should do it this way. No. When you're not invited, maybe someone didn't sin against you, but that hurt. Like I thought I was part of this group, and apparently I'm not. When your gifts aren't praised and welcomed or desired, when someone says something hurtful or careless or just ridiculous, when people complain about something that you've put a lot of effort into, and you've been, you've been extremely committed and faithful to some ministry. You have sacrificed, and you care. And then somebody comes along, and they complain about it, and how it wasn't good enough, or how it had this problem or that problem, or when they criticize your ministry. When someone gossips about you and your family, you think, really? That, why did you do that? That hurt. God wants you to be slow to take offense and quick to seek reconciliation. Fourth, this is a grace-required commitment. Like with all these things in our covenant, you, you need to put the effort in, right? Like there's, there's something that you need to do. But this is not something that you can do in your own strength. You don't have it in you, right? I mean, how many times in life has someone wronged you and you're like, yeah, I just don't, it's not worth my time. I just don't, whatever, like I don't want to do the right thing. You need that God's help and grace. And thank God, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 says, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. This is one of those realms when we're weak, where we're weak. And God says His grace is available. If you lean on Him, He'll give you that grace and help that you need. Uh, by the way, this commitment in particular, I think these relational ones, they require immense amounts of humility, don't they? God's grace is needed to swallow your pride and humbly relate to your brothers. Or, or maybe as you get into those conversations, I mean, they, they start to happen. And maybe you're, everybody's come and you're trying to make it right. And then somebody says something that just like pushes a button or the other person does. And it's just, ugh. Humility is needed. And God says he gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And finally, number five. This is the gospel-driven commitment. What would cause you to be slow to take offense and quick to seek reconciliation? That's probably not what you see in your workplace. That may not be what you see in your extended family. When everybody gets together for family gatherings, you're like, wow, my family's been feuding for four decades now. Right? Like this, this, this is what we see out there is often not this. So what would cause us as God's people to actually be committed to these courses of action? And the answer is the gospel. The gospel is a message of sin and offense covered and, and reconciliation pursued. God is described as a God of peace and a God of forgiveness. I mean, we read in, in probably the, the most well-known verse in all of the Bible that God so loved the world. God loved the world this much. Or in this way, that he sent his son Jesus, to die so that our sins might be what? Atoned for, forgiven, cleansed, rightfully covered. God has reconciled and forgiven us. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 19 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, and the old has passed away, and the new has come. 
all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Think about what our Lord has done for us to, to bring us to God. Colossians 3.13, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you, must, you also must forgive. Look at what God did for you. We, we want to go out and do that exact same thing. Remember the parable of the unforgiving servant? He had been forgiven this massive sum, a sum that's hard to even fathom. It was so great. And then he turned around after having been forgiven that incredible debt. And he turned around to someone who owed him in comparison something that was just minuscule. And he stuck it to him. He said, you're going to pay up. Based on God's forgiveness of us, which is so great. Anything that somebody does to us in comparison to what we've done to God is so small. Based on God's forgiveness of us, how could we not forgive? And I think that the reality is as a Christian that you simply, you, you cannot look at the cross for very long and be an unforgiving person. I mean, it, it, if you just look at it and its significance and you look at Jesus and his sacrifice and you gaze at that and you dwell on that and you chew on that and you process that and you drink that, how, like you, it, it just does not, you can't do that and be unforgiving. It's almost impossible. It's the gospel that must drive and motivate this commitment and nothing else, like with all of these, nothing else will sufficiently fuel it. Nothing. I want to make the same three applications that we've been making every week as we work through these. And the first is to live it, to live this out by the grace of God. I'm going to be slow to take offense and quick to seek reconciliation. And second, to pray it. Um, take our church covenant. I think there are several copies back there on the red table. If you didn't get one the first week that we started doing this and take that and just want to encourage you, pray it for yourself and pray it for the people of this church. And pray that God would help you and everyone else here to be slow to take offense and quick to seek reconciliation. God, I know people are going to hurt me here. I know people are going to wrong me here. And God, would you, would you help me when that happens to be so quick to seek reconciliation and so slow to take up offenses? And number three, make it contagious and one of the best ways that we do that is just by modeling it. Here, here's what we do as God's people. When people wrong us, we're slow to take offense. And, and when people sin against me and love can't seem to cover it or should, maybe shouldn't in this particular instance, I, I follow biblical steps and I go lovingly talk to people in humility and I say, I want to be right with you. What do we need to do for that to happen? By the grace of God, I hope that you and I will be committed to this, that we will live it out and we cannot do it apart from his grace. But, you know, when we do, it is a beautiful, wonderful thing. It's an awesome thing. And when we don't, it's the very opposite of that. And so we need God's help and we need the gospel to drive and motivate us. So um, at this time, I, I just want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. And you're going to have a few moments there in your seat to pray to the Lord 
And I want to encourage you just to take, take this time and say, God, I need your grace in this space.